and welcome to the very 69th Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, a podcast all about board games, table games, card games, role-playing games, games that you can play in the warmth and safety and security of your own home, which is exactly where I am now, looking out over misty Vancouver. But I'm joined by two people on the other end of the Atlantic. I am going to be talking about games like Charterstone and Ex Libris. I'm joined by, first of all, Quentin Smith. What are you going to talk to us about? Hello, Paul. I am going to be talking about the expansion for Flam Rouge, Peloton. Uh, and I'm going to be talking about Clans of Caledonia, a game of Scotland, <gasps> cheese, and cheeses of Scotland. Who's with you? I can hear, like, motion in the background. Yeah. Uh, Hello, I'm gyrating in the corner. My name is Matt. We can't <laughs> stop him from being in motion at any point. Matt, what are you going to be talking about? I'm a dynamic man, Quinns, and I'm going to be talking about Fortress Flea, Fable Fruit, Fast Forward and Fable in general. It's the Friedman Freeze Fs. Also, Clank in Space, and uh, maybe just a little bit of discussion about deck building games in general. Well, hey, that sounds like a lot of games to cover, Paul. It sounds terrific. I hope we have enough space for them. I hope they're safely secured. I hope nobody is over-encumbered. Let's start with uh, what I think is going to be the most exciting game for a lot of people. Let's talk about the hot new, uh, what is called a legacy game, a board game that changes as you play, gradually revealing its secrets like some kind of exotic dancer dropping his clothes one by one to the floor. Let's talk about Charterstone. Hmm. Right. That, first of all, that has not been my experience of Charterstone. I've <laughs> not had sexy gyration so far. Okay. It dawned on me as I was halfway through the analogy that, if anything, it is the furthest from an erotic dancer that a board game can be. Because you're founding a village, is that right? Instead of medieval times? Yeah. And it's it's sort of um, in that kind of... I want to say things aren't quite modern, but there's slightly different technologies that become more prominent. You know, like it's one of those places where people have airships. Uh, so right. it's, yeah, it's slightly maybe steampunky, but really, really cute as well. And the first thing that you will see about Charterstone is that uh, aesthetically, it's really, really nice. I really like the look of this game. It's got a wonderful, colorful style and it introduces, I, I won't spoil very much about what, happens as you play but it gradually introduces a number of things that are also quite cute in a sort of almost anime cuteness sort of way okay and then what are players doing because so far it's it's cute it's got secrets i'm in hold those i don't know how many horses you've got but hold them so you are gradually uh establishing a village a a village a village X by X. You're, you're, you're gradually establishing some village, Paul. Have you seen a doctor? <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, the village, hex by hex, you and your fellow players, and you have uh, different sections of... It's like a, a plot of open land. It's like if you went into the wilderness and you settled something. Someone's hexed and you his village. basically get the... Shush, you want to get the economy going, um, and there is a distant king or queen or ruler somewhere who is going to be very happy if they get lots of evidence of you basically pumping up the economy creating buildings, pulling resources out of the ground, things like iron and coal, and for some reason, pumpkins. I don't know why that's an important resource. Okay. Um, and it, it's not spoiling very much if I tell you these are all stickers that you gradually put down Ooh. on the board. So each building, something like an iron mine, for example, or a market, could be another sticker that you put in your area. Ooh. So a, a buy and buy and you're b- building pumpkins in your village. Is sticky, this. sticky. I, feel like I'm being mocked, but I'm going to continue. No, 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 um, no. We're, we're laughing with you, my friend. Honestly, I'm very curious about Charterstone. Um, and then, so what does the sort of turn-by-turn play of the game look like if you're just trying to make money? Well, so here's the thing. It is a, or certainly, like, we've played several games so far, and it's a worker placement game, and it's a game of uh, putting your little meeple folk down on one of these hexes to grab the resources that that produces. And that could be, like I say, it could be iron or pumpkins or wheat or whatever. Uh, And it has a particular mechanic where if you need a certain resource and someone's already on that space, you can still put a person on that space anyway. That knocks their meeple back to them, which actually helps them because... Ah, oh, it's got this immediately this thing that I didn't like very much that happens a lot when you play, which is after you place all your workers on hexes, you just have to take a turn taking them back so you don't do anything. It's like, you know, my hand is empty of pieces that I can put on the board, so this turn I just take them all back. So it's helpful to you if you happen to be on a resource that someone else wants 
and they plop somebody down on it and they bump someone back to you because you get to put that person somebody else. You don't get to be in that awful position of like, this turn, I do nothing, which is always a cool thing in a game. Yes, the one time I've seen that mechanic work quite well is in the card game um, Century Spice Road uh, by Plan B Games, whereby when you take all your cards back into your hand, that's so exciting because... Uh, your, you know, the amount of cards you've got gradually grows throughout the game. So when you pick your cards up, every time it's like, oh my goodness, I have so much stuff. So picking cards up is actually a sort of dramatic event as opposed to like bookkeeping. Well, it tends to be like it in really long games where it's just like, I get around where I can go to the toilet or get <laughs> some tea. Yeah, yeah. But it has to be sporadic. Right. Well, so, yeah, so here's the thing. It is not very exciting to bring your workers back. And so far, like several games in, We've been doing very similar things. We've got fairly full table. We've got five players out of the, the full possible six that the game can do. Wow. Which means you're all plopping down sort of different kinds of building. And there have been things that we've... Uh, there's an enormous, enormous amount of cards in the game that have uh, these sticky hexes on where you can... You complete a certain event and it'll tell you to dip into this deck of cards. You'll pull one out. There'll be another hex on it, which you'll stick on the board. Or First of all, you'll keep and you'll try and deploy it on the board by spending resources. And that's like it's it's good that there's lots of stuff in the game, and it's cool that you have like lots of assistants that you can recruit that give you special powers. So it's like if you visit this building, you also get an extra victory point if this assistant is, you know, in your hand of cards that you have of assistants, and that's okay. But none of this has been like hugely exciting so far. And you know, Pandemic Legacy has that thing where. As you start to play, it it will twist a rule around. It'll be like, suddenly this is happening now, or you can't do this anymore. Yes. Um, this, this feels more like Seafall, where the first few games haven't actually done a huge amount yet, and they've not really... Like the, the first game, because the board starts empty with hardly any hexes <laughs> on it, we just had like this intro game that was like a sort of a how-to-play game, and we played for an hour and a half or two hours, and then it was like, okay, we've just played the most basic worker placement game you can think of. And one of us scored slightly more points than anybody else. And next game, we're going to have slightly more things on the board. The tutorial but, does not need to be that long. And I've heard this about no. Charles Stone. Like, it doesn't need to be. I mean, I think Mix versus Minions did a good job of that because, surprise, surprise, it came from uh, people who made video games. So they understand that a tutorial has to be about 20 minutes tops of just being like, oh, introduce this, introduce this, do this tiny thing, and oh, everything changes, and then... If memory serves, the tutorial in Mix versus Minions is like where things go wrong as well. Yeah, exactly. It's like, here, we'll learn to play. And then it's like, oh no, the training exercise has gone wrong. So it's like a training exercise for about five minutes, and then it's like, oh, everything's mad, Uh, which is fun. But yeah, Paul, I'm uh, sort of... It's it's a bit worrying, but yeah, you seem to be saying what everyone is saying about Charterstone, which is that it isn't particularly entertaining. Like uh, the the idea behind it is so exciting of a, a worker placement economy game where you gradually build out this village so it becomes more complicated. But in practice, um, that's not proving to be much fun for the people who are actually buying it and working their way through it. That is, you are exactly right. That is how I feel right now. It's it's like it's been perfectly okay as a game to play and. Like I say, aesthetically, it's wonderful. And without giving too much away, there's been like, you know, clever new buildings have appeared or new types of meeple have surfaced. And it's like, okay, this thing works slightly differently. But it feels like we're still playing a game that's very similar to the first games that we played. And the first games, because they started so empty, there wasn't that much to do. So it might be like, give us a couple more games and it could get you know, a bit broader and a bit more interesting, but unless it's going to really flip the table on me or, you know, suddenly pull something, you know, step sideways or something, I think we might just be playing the same kind of basic worker placement game until we're a year older. There's a sort of weird thing with these um, uh, these campaign board games that we're getting now that, um, that still are very exciting to us where now, Paul, you're about to go through, or maybe already going through, what I went through with my C4 group, where you're a few games in and you keep meeting every week and you play it, and eventually someone has to go, should we stop? And, like, <laughs> yeah. and it's such a... It's it's an unusual conversation to have with like a gaming group or a pastime group where you just have to sort of like come to the mountain and say, we're not having much fun, guys. And probably one person's going to say like, I think we should keep going. Yeah, there's there's got to be one person who, who loves it. And it's funny, like as I'm... Um, I just sort of 
tying up, I say tying up, I haven't done recording yet, but I feel like I'm tying up the review of Gloomhaven. and um, The big fantasy campaign. Big fantasy campaign, dungeon crawler, endless thing. And yeah, again, it has that thing of like, I'm having great fun with it. But when we did expand it up to four, um, it had, had some problems. But also one of the problems we had was just that one of the guys we're playing with just wasn't feeling it. And it's like a big, bitty, mm. slow thing. And if you if you get the crunch and you love it, it's great fun. But all it takes is one person. And that's kind of an awful thing with, with legacy games that maybe people need to think about a bit more in the future is having legacy games in a way which do allow players to feel like they have a meaningful story growing that they all want to be a part of, but also allowing people to drop out. I think um, we've had a fair bit of... Pandemic Legacy always did allow players to drop out. I think dropping back in yeah. is a lot harder. Well, that's the problem. If you want to keep playing with the same number of people, one person is just not feeling it anymore. It's kind of tricky. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. I suppose so. Do you have anything else to say about uh, Charterstone, Paul? Although I'll quickly add that Matt's Gloomhaven review will be up on the site on the 15th of December, I think. So if you'd like to see a man talk uh, very excitedly about uh, hexagons and for like forever I will be it's going to be it will be on YouTube as a video but basically it will be like an online stream which will never end yeah um, it will just be video if, as far as the eye can see it's a bold new format for us uh, yeah so Paul final thoughts on Charterstone then only I'll only add that pretty much what you've just described is happening uh, we've got a, a spectrum of players some of whom have already checked out some of whom are kind of enthusiastic and some are sort of like we could play that tonight or we could play something else. And I think that is the, the key issue here is there's a couple of other games we've also been playing and it's also been a case of like, oh, I just want to play something else instead. Mm, that's the the really difficult thing about campaign games, isn't it? Well, I, I keep saying this and no one seems to agree with me. The problem with games like big games like Kingdom Death or Gloomhaven is you're sacrificing all the games you could have been playing instead. Yeah, it's like an MMO. Mm-hmm. It's like if you... I remember back in the day when I got into World of Warcraft and played World of Warcraft a lot, I enjoyed it and I played it for a few years, but I didn't play anything else because it didn't feel like a good use of my time, which is nuts. Um, but it meant when I came out the other end of that and I, I was introduced to a little game by a friend called Resident Evil 4, it was like, what have I been missing? <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I think they really have to justify it. I think it's an interesting thing in the fact that obviously it wasn't the first, but after Pandemic Legacy, which was just such a big hitter and worked so well, um, I think there's a, a lot of feverish excitement for this format but as you know as Rob Davio says it's like the whole point of this is not is to make a game that people want to play like 12 times yeah as and, opi- and uh, as a opposed to something aren't. that is intrinsically exciting yeah um, yeah. So, Paul, ch- currently a few games in, uh, you agree with a lot of other people on the internet that Charterstone is not something that our audience should be spending money on? Uh, yeah, I'm afraid I can't recommend it. And certainly if something amazing happens, I will come back on a future podcast and happily, you know, say I was wrong. But right now I would say, uh, no, I'd say look elsewhere, I'm afraid. Uh, okay, well, on continuing the subject of uh, sort of legacy style games then, let's should we talk about Friedman Friese's latest? Yeah explosion of releases um so so i found this like um this stuff pretty cute um but also obnoxious but we'll we'll get to that yeah so um people who are on the site might be aware of uh, a game called power grid um but the german name for that game is uh, funkenschlag um and that's important because it begins with f yes Uh, and friedman fries is a designer whose games are all green and all begin with the letter f uh and I've got the, like a list in front of me now. Unfortunately, they're all translated, so a lot of them don't begin with F. Um, so that's going to be less entertaining than I hoped for. However, um, <laughs> Paul recently reviewed 504 <laughs> is the last of his work that we have. Oh, that of course, on the site. yeah. Another game oh, this green. Yeah. Paul, would you like to give a capsule uh, review of 504 to the audience or anyone who doesn't know what it is? 504 is like a box full of a whole bunch of components and sort of uh, it's like puzzle rule sections that you click together so you can have a game that is like a move and deliver game that has like some trading and then has some other element or you can flip bits of the book around and then you'll have three slightly different rule set the thing being that you look at it and you you're like oh there must be lots of different stuff to play in here and then you play loads of them and a lot of the fundamentals are kind of similar and very few of them, if any, are exciting. They yeah. make 504 different games. Do you want to try five? I'll be honest with you, I didn't. I you didn't. Know, it's funny because I forgot that 405 was a Friedman Freese thing. Um, so we play these smaller games, which yes. are basically, they're called, uh, they have a fast um, forward. Yes. So, well, I'll give the full sort of biography of this, and then you can provide your thoughts on them. Sure. Um, so it started with Fabled Fruit, um, which is a game which I played last night. Matt hasn't played this one. Um, it's a game of being animals in the forest who are all keen to make fabled juices 
and drink the juice <laughs> of the fabled what, what? fruit. So what the fable system is, it's a relatively straightforward card game where it's it's actually kind of like a worker placement thing where when the game starts, you have these six animals who know how to make six juices. I'm slightly exaggerating the theme on this as my interpretation of it. But like, so there might be a rhino who knows how to make some rhino juice and there might be like an ostrich who knows how to make some ostrich juice. These six animals in the middle of the table all offer slightly different actions. So, Matt, on your turn, maybe you go visit the rhino, and the rhino's action is draw two fruit cards. I go and visit the moose, who's like, draw up to three fruit cards. Uh-huh. When you have the right fruit, you can buy the juice of one of the animal cards on the table. So maybe you buy the rhino's <laughs> juice. You then take that card out of the game, but you replace it with a new animal. Wow. Okay. So, as in, it's like a worker placement game where instead of having six spaces, anytime you buy one of the spaces, it gets replaced with a it's new Umbongo one. It's Umbongo Legacy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, now you need to explain Umbongo for Umbongo our American listeners. Was a fruity drink with an advert about how they made it in the Congo, and it was really enjoyable when we were children. But in retrospect, it's almost I just realised this is massively problematic. Yeah, it's really problematic. But we were like four, and it was a very catchy song. Okay. So, anyway, yeah, it's 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 Umbongo. Like, oh my goodness! I mean, don't keep saying it. Yep, I'm gonna stop. So, um, yes, the thing is though, what he calls the fabled system is that you finish a game of Fabled Fruit, but you've only seen like nine animals out of a deck of like something like 50 different animals. But then those nine animals you end the game with stay there. So it's like if you play Fabled Fruit and again a week later, you bring out the same animals and the same friends. And mm-hmm. so it's a card game that's kind of constantly changing, constantly evolving. Yeah. Which brings us to um, his new series of games, which we're going to be talking about today, because they are actually really interesting. This is yes. uh, Flea, Fortress, and... Well, those are the only two we've played so far. Um, and there's a solo one, There's isn't a it? solo one, and there's something else we're going to talk about. But yeah, so these are the fabled systems, so each time you play, they evolve slightly. But also, they have what he's calling the fast-forward system. Again, all this stuff begins with F. Um, and the Paul, these games don't have manuals. Yeah. So each of these, mm-hmm. each of Flea and okay. Fortress is just a big deck of cards, and the game will start, and it'll say, draw up to eight cards until you find another rule card. And so you draw the cards for all the players, and then you draw another rule card that's like... Put these cards down, and this is how the game works. So as you progress through the deck, the game teaches you how to play. It also means when you sit down to start playing, you have no idea what you're playing. Yeah, which is great. And actually, the first one we played was the best one, I think. It was Fortress. Fortress. And Fortress was a game which was quite simple. It was about um, basically playing little sets of um, troops to go and take over these fortresses. But at the start of the game, there was one fortress in the middle of the table. And then increasingly, there was like, oh, there's another one. Okay. And also... You know, we started with cards that were like, oh, this guy's worth one, but if you get three of them, they're worth eight. But then this guy's worth two, and if you get three of them, they're worth 24. And then, like, you get to the second or third game, and suddenly you draw a fresh card, and it's like, this card on its own is worth 20. And you're like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's... You didn't... Because when you finished a game of Fortress, you put new cards into the deck, but you didn't look at them. Yeah. So the delightful thing, Paul, is it's a card game where you just had no idea what was in the deck at any point. Yeah, so every, every time we played a new game, we both look at our hand of cards, and we just go, whoa, and, and then we'd have no idea what it was. And what was lovely was... Only the cards that actually ended up being used to win the game would then go back into the box and be out of the game. It then meant that um, there was just stuff cycling through that the other player hadn't seen yet. Or when it got to the point where we weren't getting through much of the new cards that we'd been given, it would mean that we'd have... Even more to look forward to the next game. Yeah, so it became this weird thing. of To begin the early stages of the game, you play the first two or three matches, and each one took about five minutes. It was very quick. But each round was quite controlled by the game. It knew basically roughly what was happening to a degree and it knew what it was introducing. But as you went on, uh, it got fuzzier and fuzzier and it meant, you know, we had a card that we pulled out towards the end and we were like, oh, there's a, that could have come out way earlier and it would have been really different. Um, I really quite liked it. There were a few bits towards the end where there were some cards which weren't that clear or felt a bit superfluous and it, it kind of... It started to come off the rails a bit. Yeah. Um, but... I must say it was a really small box thing and we just sat in a bar and we just opened it up and we both just played it and we played it to completion. Which took about two hours. About two hours. Oh, and wow. You know what? Like for a good three quarters of that, it wasn't until we got to the final stretch where we were a bit like, ah, okay, this isn't as good. This And started to take it apart a little bit as we do because, you know, we're, we're arses. Uh, <laughs> so critics. But it was a sort of thing where actually... Um, I thought, you know, this little box, reasonably cheap, I thought this would be great just for a train journey. Just to be able to get something out on the train and be like, we're going to play this. And having no one having any idea what it is, it's just felt like a 
a, for me, a really good like way to just spend two hours with some people without having to be like, I'll learn the rules or having one person knowing the rules more than the others. Because I think actually, and we found the same thing with, um, it's kind of in a way, this whole shtick of this has been a little bit sideswiped by Fog of Love, which has the same Oh, the same of, tutorial of, of learning as you play together. In the deck, yeah. But it does it much better. If people haven't heard of Fog of Love, we talk about it a lot on the last podcast, number yeah. 68. And that's, I mean, I think it was kind of in a way... I think there's something to be said for that in terms of the, especially that thing of like when you're a kid and you, uh, you know, you play a bunch of Smash Brothers to unlock all the characters before your friend come ra- friends come around. And then when your friends come around, you know the game more than they do. And there's sort of this weird power balance. I think there's something really, really important in some cases, mm. especially if you're playing with newer players to have this sense of everyone learning together. So there's no like, oh, well, obviously I can do this. Did I not explain that rule? <laughs> uh, which is, I guess, uh, perhaps an issue with some groups. Yeah, even kind of delightful having no kind of no concept of the game that you're playing yeah. as well. Like, you can sit down to play Fortress and you go, oh, it's a game of bluffing and set collection. And then other cards are enter the deck and you go, oh, wow. Oh, it's really about bluffing. And then at points during our Fortress, like, quote-unquote, campaign, because we must have played, like, what, 15 games of Fortress back-to-back? Must, must have done, yeah. Somewhere in game, like, wow. 10 or 11, I was like, there's no bluffing in this. <laughs> because of how the game had shaken out. Um, it, I, I think it was the surprise that was so delightful. And also the fact that the game yeah. wasn't beating around the bush. I think we probably finished Fortress in the time it took you to play. Like, you wouldn't have finished one game of Charterstone in the time it took us to finish and want to give away Fortress. And I did want to give Fortress away. I would love to put that game into the hands yeah. of one of my friends and say, play this and just kind of watch their reaction because it's yeah. so weird. I mean, I think that's it for me now is I realize that Friedman Freeze has this thing where these games are really weird and surprising and playful. Like the fact that when we were drawing up cards and the game seemed to be shifting and changing, we were constantly like, what kind of game is this going to end up being? And I found that really fun. However, <laughs> however... <laughs> I've got to say that having played the other ones as well, Flea, which was a cooperative game where it was Alice in Wonderland style, char- char- style characters, Alice in Wonderland characters, uh, trying to escape from a monster and playing cards in specific orders, that was a less enjoyable. And especially towards the end, it was doing that kind of playful thing, but in a way that, and I think really that keyed into my biggest issue with the whole Friedman Freeze thing, the whole in all the Fs, all the green boxes, <laughs> all of the cards being green, is it's like there's a thin line between being playful and silly and chaotic and troublesome. And I, I love being yeah. chaotic and troublesome and being a trickster and just being self-indulgent and a pain in the ass. And I kind of feel like a lot of that stuff, especially, again, I completely forgot five, four, five, 504. Yeah. 504, sorry, it's the same guys. And it kind of makes sense. It's just like, to, especially towards the end of Flea, it was like, this is just self-indulgent. Like to the point where I'm like, actually, I'm not sure I'm on board with this. Like I feel like you're having more fun with this than I am. Like, yeah, I got that. I get that with the color green because yeah. um, especially the new fast forward games are... <laughs> 504, Paul, is, you will agree, aggressively green. Like it's, So, yeah, it is. And I feel like, what was the other card game? The one where you're on an island and you're... Uh, it's oh, a solo Friday. Game. Friday. Yeah, it's also extremely green, which is fine. But then after a while, I... You know, it's you even know, like the, the FF concept. It just does feel like it's wearing a tiny bit thin. I, You know, fine is the word I wanted to bring onto this podcast because it also begins with F and it's how I describe a lot of Freeman <laughs> Freeze's recent yeah. uh, stuff. The thing is, um, I should add before people get too excited by this fast forward stuff, Fortress is the only one we can recommend. Fabled Fruit, which I think is the one that's got all the hype. I played and was just like, this is so... I was really very bored by Fabled Fruit. Like, not even the lure of like, but next time we play, it will be different, could stop my friends from being like, oh my goodness, do we have to play this again? Um, he feels like, especially with 504 and Fabled Fruit, God, it's... <laughs> <laughs> just do, do you see now. though it it just yeah it does something I can see what Matt's saying that it's it's kind of obnoxious yeah um, yeah I don't think it's intentionally obnoxious and I think it's quite cool to have like these very specific things that you're like no this is my signature but when there's so many of them I, I kind of can't help but feel like that there gets a point where as a creator you're no longer uh, having your own particular flares you're just being strangely stubborn to a point where it actually affects your ability to put out things which are enjoyable for other people yes. I think maybe he's enjoying these exper- these creations more than I got that with Flea us. I was like you're having fun with this I'm yeah. not <laughs> especially the last card in the Flea deck which was just like uh, it actually just left a sour taste in my mind I was like you had fun with this but I'm not having fun. Yeah, so if people would like to experience the fabled rule set and the fast forward system uh, I would pick up Fortress but probably I think I don't know if you have to buy these games because I think the coolest ideas in them that Friedman Fries has deployed, more power to him. 
will probably be absorbed by other game designers in more palatable games. So, I liked Fortress. I think I liked Fortress slightly more than you did. I thought that was cool, actually. The rest of them, I was actually kind of hyped to play, and then I found them all disappointing. I don't think it's fantastic. <laughs> oh, sugar. But, uh, I enjoyed I, it. I forgot to say the coolest thing, actually. Um, from all of these sets that we have been sent, um, oh, yeah. there, is the, there, there is, Paul, an expansion they've mm-hmm. done in this same line for Power Grid. Um, the wonderful game that is somewhat mathsy, um, but still absolute genius of uh, building power plants and powering cities and and all this good stuff. People can look for Shut Up and Sit Down Power Grid if they'd like to see my video review of the new deluxe version, um, but it's also a review of the regular version. So what they've done is they've done a fabled expansion, very small deck of cards for Power Grid, and this is, I think, really, really cool. So what this is, is um, it's two separate decks for your Power Grid sort of campaign. You sit down with some friends, and you put out the fabled decks, like in Fabled Fruit or Flea or whatever, and the top card of the deck will change the rule slightly. So it'll say like, oh, the year is 1950, and governments are providing subsidies to build power stations, which means all power stations are cheaper. Until enough power stations get on the board, and then you know something's going to happen. So all this deck is, is a way of taking a game that you're familiar with, like that you've played to death, like Power Grid, and saying, well, hey, now we've changed this rule. But also the game is somewhat alive because mid-game, it's going. that card's going to go away and be replaced by another surprising card. And you can string multiple games of Power Grid in a campaign. And it was just such a clever, cheap way to rejuvenate a game. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that, you know, that sounds immediately uh, really appealing as well. I like the idea of that. Yeah, me too. And I would like to see a lot of, you know, games, like whether it's, you know, uh, Concordia or, uh, or Cosmic Encounter, you know, Shut Up and Sit Down favorites, like having just a small cheap expansion, which is a bunch of cards, maybe a few components saying like, hey, you're going to, like the people on this podcast now, the three of us would play multiple games of Cosmic Encounter in a row. Like, yeah. the since we would do that already, the idea of a little expansion that like ties some of those games together, you know, like adds a little whiff of legacy, like yeah. so that we're making uh, impactful choices that affect. Well, I guess there's always been, and I mean, you know, we've we've literally s- sat in on on meetings that Fantasy Flight have had about talking about expansions. You know, yeah. when we when we were filming the Twilight Imperium documentary and about how, like, you know, what people expect for it and how, what the price should be. And it's interesting how they're, you know, look at cosmic expansions for exactly it. Always has been like get a new color of discs, get a da, 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 get the cards because actually they know that with just the cards it would be really small. Really it would be thin. a it would feel like a low value proposition. But then I don't know. I kind of feel like actually like you know with the um oh, what's it called the, the is it the underworld um I've forgotten the name of it for um Lords of Vegas. The oh, cards basically oh, yeah. the the expansion that's not out yet, so we're not allowed we're allowed to forget its name. Yeah. Um. But basically, yeah, that just being like oh well, he you know he says. Up did a really good job of making it more playable with more players and adding more depth, but he wanted to do a version of that which was also cheap so anyone could buy it. And I, to be honest, I'd like to see more of that. Of like, here's an expansion for a game. It's literally just these 20 cards and it costs like $5 or whatever. Yeah, it's like, curious, isn't it? I mean, this ties into what we always talk about with Kickstarters where the Kickstarter value proposition is a little... It's so um, powered by the value proposition that and hey, you though, get Kickstarters I mean, with too much in the box. It kind of lets you patch games. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yep. And it was a real shame when we were playing to review the Rebellion expansion that it was like clearly an attempt to kind of patch some aspects of the game because it also had to have all this other plastic stuff in it. It kind of just yeah, made it exactly it, it the same. It seems like almost the complete opposite, actually. The Rebellion expansion was so big and, you know, re- tried to rewire so much of the game and yet now I'm excited by the idea of a power grid edition that is just a couple of cards. Well, it's because what what Rebellion kind of needed was to make the combat more interesting, and they did that with the combat cards, but then it also mm-hmm. came with all these other bits and just made it even more like unruly and unwieldy. It's weird, isn't it? I think uh, certainly expansions that are just a card. Like the, the expansion they've announced for A Feast for Odin um, is just two islands. It's like two new islands that are double-sided yeah. for you to colonize. And when I first saw that, I balked like anyone would. It's like, oh, you expect me to pay $6 for two pieces of cardboard? Um, but then I played Feast for Odin some more, and it's like, no, two new islands like radically changes the game. I love that game. I only played that one time with you on a Saturday afternoon. It was just, I loved it. It it's, was I think really all three gentle of us thing. really like it. If, uh, if, if people haven't seen Paul's A Feast for Odin review, go check that out. But Paul, I would love to talk to you about the other game we teased at the top of the podcast. <gasps> Uh, do you want to talk about the books and libraries of Ex Libris? I, you know what I really do, and I will tell you why. Because here, here's a game that I had uh, sat on my table for sort of a week or two in my to play pile, and I looked at it and I thought it looks it looks very cute. It's kind of a nice idea. I should try it at some point. And it was one of those things where I put it on the table and I ended up liking it a lot more than I first thought I would. 
and I had a really good time with it. Yeah, Ex that, Libris. Nope. Sorry, go on. I was just going to say that publisher, uh, Rebellion. Renegade. 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 Renegade uh, are killing it. Not to the point that I can remember their name, apparently. But uh, yeah, Renegade putting out some boxes like Pytown. Hey, if you're going to come out with a name for a publisher that's pretty similar to like a bunch of video game things, then we're going to get them mixed up. That's true. we've been dipped in that tank too many times. That's true. Yeah, so Renegade putting out some good work. I'm sorry for interrupting you, Paul. Well, yeah, and th- this looks like another one. So the... You you are basically building a bookcase. You have some cards, gentlemen. You have some cards which are books. Um, and you like the very first card you put down might be M, and it's the M section of your bookcase, and it's got a couple of different books in, and those books might be reference books or books about monsters or books about magic because it all has a kind of a fantasy library theme. And what you're trying to do from this is build out, and you could only put cards next to cards you've already put down. Build out a bookcase that you want to build in alphabetical order, even though you, you know, you'll be getting all kinds of cards in all kinds of different order. But also a bookcase that features the books that are the popular sort of book for this kind of game, but also that doesn't feature any of the books that are the banned books, which are whichever that kind of book is in this game. (laughs) Wait, Uh, hang on. Is it, so is it like the Necronomicon? What's fashionable and what's banned is determined randomly when you start the game. Yeah, there's there's six categories of books and it might be like reference books are are cool right now. Reference books are banned. (laughs) No one can reference anything. And like this in itself would be a cool kind of mini challenge of like, you you know, you're drawing cards and you're playing them and whenever you put something down, it's fixed. So you're trying to uh, build out a bookcase in a way that keeps everything in alphabetical order and also gives you more of the right kinds of cards and hopefully none of the bad ones, that in itself would be a kind of a cool challenge. But you've also got a sort of a rotating worker placement thing going on all the time. Your library, which is your own player board, has uh, a couple of gnomes, of course, because that's who works in a library, and then a specific unique figure, which is unique to you. I had a ghost and the cool thing about a ghost in a worker placement game is it's transparent, so it can share a space with somebody else, which immediately makes sense. Yeah. But you can have something like a snowman, which uh, blocks other spaces for other people, or you could have like a, a trash golem that sort of goes through the discard pile and pulls out cards for you, things like this. So everyone's own library has um, immediately its own special character that does its own special thing. And then in the middle of this board, as well as having your own board where you can put people on and do basic, what they call shelving, which is adding cards to your bookcase, uh, you have these constantly rotating um, sort of little tile bits of the board in the middle, which could be like this turn there is a book sale or this turn there is a donation drive. So you can give away some of your cards and replace them with others. Or this turn there's um, some gambling. So you just draw a bunch of cards out of the deck and if you can name the most common type of book in those cards, you get them. And these are always rotating as well. So you get a turn of like playing with the stuff and then most of it goes away, but one of them becomes permanent that you can always use. And so the worker placement side of it starts to get really interesting, really dynamic. Building your own library just goes wrong and makes you swear constantly because for some reason you end up with all the X, Y, Z cards, but you didn't make any space for that because you're like, there aren't many of those in the game. So, um, I'm, you know, I'm just going to assume that the end of my alphabet is like, I don't know, uh, V. I'm just going to, you know, assume that my bookcase ends at V because that's likely right. Um, I love the mechanic of any game that gives you a blank canvas and goes, hey, just design something cool and neat that works and you go, okay, and then you put some stuff down and it's instantly a disaster and you go, oh no, because you can't move it. That is just my absolute, like, so yeah, that sounds, that that I'm I'm very interested in. Also, I like it's, books. Right, yeah, and this is, I did not expect to like this as much as I did. Uh, I, I mean, it's, it's really cute. It's got some cool ideas. So I was like, yeah, I'm, we're going to have some fun playing this. But we every, it was one of those games where everybody got into it and by the end of it, Everybody was like, oh, that was even better than I expected. I enjoyed that so much more. And I feel also like we've only kind of scratched the surface because um, although we've seen all the different locations for worker placement in the game, we haven't played with all the different library types and all the different specialist workers that you can place. And I know the dynamics are going to be quite different when we play another game and pick different characters. And it's been a kind of a really wonderful end-of-year surprise that... um, I don't know. It's going to be something I play a bunch over the holidays as well because I guess it's got that nice warm 
booky theme that would suit, I don't know, a snug Christmas? You know, what's weird about this is I kind of let this one slip me by in my job as editor and it took like multiple people going, no, it's really good for me to sort of, I think I had a review copy sent to you, uh, Paul. But yes, as someone who is like addicted to books, like who was it who sung Addicted to Love? Robert Palmer. (sighs) Okay, so the Robert Palmer of books. Like as in... (laughs) I, I, I like books. They're all over my bedroom. I don't have enough bookshelves for them. I, if I want to do a treat, then I'll buy myself like a comic or a cookbook or a novel or whatever. I find bookshops really soothing. The theme of Ex Libris does nothing for me. Like when I look at it, I just don't care, which which strikes me as really unusual. Is it because they're not real books? Yeah, I think so. Because it's it's the, you know, Paul, the spines in Ex Libris are like really long. Like they don't look like books to me. They don't have the inherent platonic bookishness that I associate with books. Have I gone they, mad? <laughs> no, it's... that. So this is a thing that immediately didn't grab me. I didn't thematically feel like there was something really exciting going to come out of this game. And the idea of of basically, you know, shelving, that is the, the core thing that you're doing is... I actually... But um, I will reorganize my bookshelves. Like, that's a way I would relax. And yet... An actual game about organizing bookshelves. I'm like, it's a bit nerdy, isn't it? Have these shelves, well, d- have these shelves got didn't. a mechanic where you've got to put in the very long screws into the wall to make sure that the bookshelf doesn't fall down? Oh, you're a different. That's kind incredibly of important. You're it does. Important. It does have a scoring criteria where if your shelves are, if you have like a nice rectangle um, that you've built out of all the cars that you lay down, you, you get more points than oh, if... Because there can be, like, gaps in your shelves. And I had a wonderful oh, turn once where... Oh, now where I'm I in. Put a worker, I put a worker on something that allowed me to shift a bunch of my cards by, like, one space, and everything suddenly magically clicked into space. I filled all the holes <laughs> that I that needed to be filled, and I made holes for the cards that I currently had in my hand, because you also have cards in your hand, which are not worth anything at the end of the game, but... You always, you know, no one knows what you're holding and you always have this thing where you're like, oh, I actually have three tea cards in my hand. So if I can make a, a if bit I can more slide these space, books along. Yeah. And that that happened for me. And that that gave me a wonderful sort of shiver of joy while that was happening. <laughs> this sounds like Galaxy Booker. Oh, like, Ooh, yeah, Galaxy yeah. Trucker, but with books. It's a bad pun. It, it makes sense. And uh just an extra thing I would add, there's little elements whereby things that you do, like a lot of worker placement games don't have very much player interaction. They're a thing of like, I go in this space and that's it. And you can't go there. Whereas Ex Libris has things like where you occupy a space and it's like other people can use this location that I'm in, but now because I've occupied it, you have to pay me a card or I'm going to go to this space and burn all the books that are here before anybody else goes there. Do you literally burn books? You, one of the characters does. <laughs> and so it's like, ah, oh, there's actually, there's, you care about what other people are doing, not just because they are taking up space, but because there are mechanics whereby they, they might screw with what you're doing or you might have to pay them some kind of a toll. And that immediately kept us more engaged as well. Mm, and I like that. Yeah. As we, uh, as we hurtle towards the, the later segment of the podcast, I'm going to very quickly go through, uh, the last two games on my list, if you were... Unless you had anything else to add about Ex Libris, Paul? No, I'm actually really keen. You've got two of my favourite things, which is uh, France and Scotland. Okay, well, I'm basically. looking forward to your Ex Libris review uh, in 2018. Um, yeah, but yeah. It, it's got to be one. By the way, we've got to either... A written review or a video has to happen. Absolutely. It's worth it. I'm, I'm excited. So Clans of Canadonia, I'll talk about really quickly, and you guys can throw questions at me if any of this doesn't make sense, but it was a, a Kickstarter Euro game. Um, you're a game meaning a game of sort of running a uh, economy, managing resources, and generally being cubes. the best at cubes. 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 Um, it's a game of Scottish cubes. Um, I don't actually cubes. know if they're... Why? <laughs> cubes. I'm on the cubes. Um, I don't actually think there are any cubes in it. It's, it's a hexagonal map of Scotland, and you put down... Like, for example, if you want to have a field of wheat, then you would pay a certain amount of money, and then you take the wheat off your home board and put the wheat on the central map and then it'll be giving you wheat every turn sure, sure but you can only build near what you've built already um if i'm honest i'm not going to talk about it very much because it just didn't do much for me okay. uh, it got oh. a lot it got a lot of hype um but you know what it was and it, and credit to the designer whose name i can't remember off the top of my head um it is really really well made but you know what matt matt 
Matt. What? It was another Marco Polo. Oh. Which is to say, um, this was a controversial review that Matt and I did earlier in the year, mm. whereby Marco Polo was a really very good, very well-crafted, expertly crafted even Euro game that just didn't excite us. Yeah. And now that our collections are like, you know, we've got dozens of games in our houses. You know, a game needs to really stand out, really be special, really offer something unique and dramatic to make us say, hey, you know what? Go out there, go to your local game shop, drop. Yeah, you know, forty or fifty quid, and often it. it's just a case of like the engine isn't enough. Like, yes, this is a very finely crafted, good Euro game engine, but then, uh, you know, why not then look at what everything else you can do as part of the package to just tie into that and make it better and make it more thematic and more interesting. Yeah, Clans of Caledonia um, did not feel enormously Scottish to me. Uh, if it could have been Clans of. England, it could have been clans of Brazil, it could have been clans of anywhere. It was just putting resources <laughs> on a map. Um, and frankly, it was it was even slightly weird to me because um, if you why Scotland? Like there are already so many games set in Scotland. Um, it 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 just kind of threw me. Um, well, I guess it's it's all about having that distance, isn't it? It's the same reason that people love all of these uh, Euro games set in ancient Europe. It's Scotland remains one of these sort of almost fictional places for a lot of people outside of England or the UK, and the fact that it's just like ah, oh, yeah, hills, that's true. beards, yeah. and it, it's like in reality, it's like it's not. I think to Americans, <laughs> kilts are like an almost fictional thing. Like, I mean, I'd love that. a modern Euro based in Scotland where you like trade two tonic tea cakes for like a big bottle of iron brew. Or yeah, <laughs> the one time I've worn a kilt in my life was uh, on New Year's when I was working in a bar and a drunk lady tried to reach up my kilt. I would make a game of being upset with women trying to reach up your kilt. It's not fun, not no. funny, not no. magical America. It's not magical. Glasgow is a great place to go drinking though. Saw some fantastic. Edinburgh's a great place to walk around at night and feel sad. Well, it's I mean, see, Scotland has a lot going on. I actually love Scotland. Sc- yeah, it does. No, I, we're, we're fans of Scotland. Yeah. We really are, but not this kind of the exact same era that all board games in Scotland are set, which is like the 1700s when you know whiskey distilleries were. Hey, cool fact I learned from Clans of Caledonia is that Scotch whiskey mm-hmm. only became popular when there was a shortage of, I think, brandy <laughs> or some European um, liquor. Um, where which was the done thing, but it ran out, and then Scotland's like, we have some, <laughs> we've got a drink, watch, and then and everyone's like, okay, whoa, this stuff's fine. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> it's fine. It's like with cheese, <laughs> like with cheddar cheese. It's, uh, like so many things in history are just. There was a shortage at one point and everyone had to have this and now it's the thing that everyone loves. Yes, cheddar cheese uh, was caused by World War II. Look it up. Um, that's not a joke. Anyway, so I don't really want to talk about Clans of Caledonia. Not because it's not good, but because it wasn't exciting to me. Sure. Instead, I'll talk about something that is exciting to me, which is Flamme Rouge Peloton. Um, <gasps> the, the first expansion for Flamme Rouge has arrived in my hot little hands. Matt and I reviewed Flamme Rouge earlier this year. A game of bikes and the men who ride them. Yep. Um... It's a, a game of the 1920s, sort of like Tour de France uh, era bicycling. It is great. Everyone mm. I've shown it to uh, has loved it. And very simple racing game to do with uh, uh, not wanting to be at the front of a pack because then you get tired, um, but wanting to be at the back of the pack because then you get slipstream and free movement. But if you go too slow, then you fall out of the bottom of the pack and then you're getting exhaustion and you're alone and you're in last place. Um, really, really lovely game. And the Peloton expansion adds cobblestones where the road gets really narrow and all the bicyclists can't overtake each other. It adds um, sort of refueling zones, which are really wide. So they're great places to overtake. Um, it adds uh, components for a fifth and sixth player. Um, and you've been playing, and this was in the part of the original game, but you've for the first time been playing with the app, right? Yes. So weirdly, here's a cool thing. So I would encourage anyone who likes Flamme Rouge to buy the Peloton expansion when it comes out, purely because it adds a bit more variety. Um, it lets you play with five or even six, um, which, because the game is simultaneously play, doesn't slow it down. So lots of fun stuff. But yeah, like you say, this was my first time playing with the app, which is free, and you can get it even if you just have the base game. And it's really nice, really professional, and it lets you string... Um, games of Flamme Rouge together in a grand tour, following the same rules as the Tour de France, where if one of your cyclists comes in first, second, or third, they get points, and then it's all your points across all of the races um, that makes the big difference. But what I didn't know is that if you play in a grand tour, which can be any amount of races that you want, the exhaustion cards that go in your bicyclist's deck, at the end of a race, you if you've got like eight exhaustion, you get rid of half of them, but the other half are still in your deck next time. And to anyone who's not played Femme Rouge, they're going to go like, so? But if they have, <laughs> yeah. then they're going to go, horrible. what? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's yes, Paul. It's it means horrible. you can be like, well, I'm not going to win this one, but I'm just going to take it real easy. Yeah, it's, 
Yeah, but then it's like, well, but taking it easy in the context of Flam Rouge also means like yeah. you might fall out of the pack yeah. and then you get more exhausted. No, it's it's great. Flam Rouge is one of those games that's a bit like Skull, actually. If, if someone explains the rules to you and you're like, and what? Like it's like this doesn't it doesn't appear to be anything there. It's too yes. simple. Yeah. And then you start playing it and suddenly it's just like <gasps> it just jumps to life and you realize the opportunities to play with there and it's yeah. It's and everyone fantastic. just ends up laughing because there's always someone who's the person it's funny because I think the person in first place gets exhaustion, which is funny. Yeah. And the person in last place is in last place, so that's funny. So like there's always <laughs> in any board state, someone's going like no, and someone's going <laughs> or multiple people are going, no. Um but yeah, the Peloton expansion is good. But um shout out to my friend Clark, who uh saw a conversation on Board Game Geek with the designer uh, Asker, I think his name is. And someone said to him um on Board Game Geek, does the Peloton expansion for Flam Rouge fit in the box of the base game? And he said, I think he's well, maybe Danish or f- from Scandinavia, but so I, in my head, I'm going to give this the sort of that Nordic accent. But he's like, yes, uh, <laughs> in my home, my copy of Flam Rouge has three expansions and it all fits. So then the internet was like, oh, sorry, what? <laughs> three expansions? And he's like, yeah, you know, I don't know if the publisher's going to go for the other ones. <laughs> but it means, you know, all you Flam Rouge fans out there, if you buy Peloton, if enough of us buy Peloton we can see uh, perhaps more expansions for Flam Rouge in more future. More bikes. And, you know, yeah, maybe an anniversary edition of Flam Rouge in like 10 years with all the expansions. Wouldn't that be a treat? I, I'm really stoked for this, actually. And I, I, you didn't get any lowdown on what the other expansions were, did you? I have found this is like detective work. If you read the PDF of the rules that is condensed in the app, because we were uncertain about something in the app, so we went and read the PDF. In the PDF, which is like this <gasps> weird unpublished file, it mentions offhandedly like, oh, also you can play with like every bicyclist gets a special power card. So like your bicycle team gets a special power. But then the PDF doesn't have any inclusion of those cards. So it's like, well, clearly this is a holdover from... Dun, yeah. dun, one dun. of the rules from one of the expansions. So a future Flam Rouge. It's the Mandela exp- effect. It's an alternate reality document. Yeah, or, <laughs> or, or, or it's one of the rules from uh, the future, which would mean... Yeah, I suppose it could be that. Your red, your red cyclist could be like, really good at slipstreaming. And my oh, baby. black cyclist could be like, really good at like putting the power down, yeah. breaking away from the pack. The oh, that's the fantastic. other thing. Peloton ads, uh, you bid with cards so that when whatever race you play, when it starts one or two cyclists will be like significantly ahead of everyone else. Wow. But they'll have more exhaustion. So then the whole, the game begins with the rest of the pack just being like trying to catch up to these two guys who've broken away. Oh, it's so good. Like, I swear, anyone who hasn't played Fran Rouge has been listening to me talk for the last five minutes going, oh my God, finish, just stop talking about bicycles. But like, you've got to try it, guys. I specifically bought a copy of Cockroach Poker for Christmas to play with my in-laws and I might be have to grab one of those or or pinch your copy briefly. Oh, I'm you're like, very welcome to yeah, steal mine. Because I was like, oh copy. yeah, that's perfect. It's like a little bit competitive, simple, perfect. But also it's a great game in that you can sit there and stress over moves. But like, also if you're not, if you don't care, or you're tired. Like I had to have a conversation with someone online during part of our game. And I was like having the conversation while playing cards almost at random and the game yeah. still held up because it's just very easy going in that way. Yeah, 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 yeah. What a delight. The final thing that we said we were going to talk about very briefly was um, Clank in Space, I Clank believe. Clank in Space. Clanking in Space. I wasn't, wasn't being facetious there because <laughs> I think it has the the letter A in the word space. is like there's multiple copies. Paul, oh, yeah. Okay. You played Clank uh, a while back on this podcast. You weren't a huge fan. I liked it, but I didn't love it. Yes. So we've played Clank in Space. Is it yeah. better in space? Is, does that make a game that's better? What, that's what astronauts say. Well, Paul, I would say we liked it, but we didn't love it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's it's more complicated than, than slightly more complicated than Clank. I've seen the board of Clank. I've never played it, but I've seen the board and it appears to have less places on it. Do you want things. to describe what Clank sure. is? So Clank in Space is basically... You have a big spaceship and you have to move around the spaceship and you do that by playing cards which have movements on them. But then there's like locked doors and you have to have cards that have things that let you get past that. And there's enemies and you have to have enemy cards that let you fight enemies. (laughs) So basically what it is, is it's a a, uh, deck building game where you're just drawing up cards, you're buying new cards um, and then you're cycling your deck. Uh, for those of you who haven't played Deck Builder, that's how it works. You start off with very few, and then increasingly you get more and more cards, and then, oh, but is that a good idea? What maybe kind of a deck are you going to build? Exactly. You maybe, don't know. Maybe you should keep it like tight and thin and try and like trim stuff away, or maybe you go for a really big one, but get cards that let you keep drawing loads of cards, and you become like a weird constant machine of just stuff. 
But in this, it has a board and it has character pieces, which means you are using a deck building mechanic as a means of moving around this ship, collecting things. And the, the premise is basically you need to get into the ship, steal something from the best bit of the ship. Yeah, like, the sort of cockpit area. And then mm-hmm. leave. And as soon as you steal something, you just need to leg it and everyone else has to go, oh gosh, and grab something and then go. I think Matt and my joint favourite bit of it were the, the actual items that where you have yeah. to steal one of them, um, which sort of implies maybe you're not the good guys, is that uh, you know you can take like his power glove, you can take his... Yeah, his crap. Game Boy. You can take his Game Boy, that's the lowest scoring <laughs> one. You can take his boots or like the most high-valued thing that you can steal from this massive spaceship is his chair. Yes. Like his captain's chair, the idea that you've like got it over your shoulder and you're sprinting back so out of the Plank, ship. So in it was a dragon and you were stealing treasure from a dragon. In this, in yes. space, you're stealing it from a, an unseen alien and the alien token like makes it look like it's kind of xenomorphy but the fact that you're breaking into this ship and stealing his chair you just imagine them coming back and being like you stole my chair what the (laughs) these guys suck um so i found that humor really funny all of the cards i have to say like literally all of the cards i'm pretty sure 90 percent of them were just references to sci-fi films mainly from the 90s um, or more modern stuff. There was a lot of Fifth Element references there, which I really enjoyed because I love the Fifth Element. Oh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Doctor yes. Who, Star Wars, Star Trek. Uh, so yeah, well, not just 90s, like everything, but it was yeah. like really overt, really like sometimes niche, but this is like massive references to all sorts of sci-fi stuff. So it was sort of pastiche. It was sort of fun and it has this, this fun mechanic of, you know, every time you do things, you can basically... There's different strategies, but one of the key strategies is really, do you want to try and move very carefully and maybe slowly, or do you want to just get cards that let you just bash through, make a lot of noise, hence clank, and that means that when the alien ship master comes to get you, which happens periodically, it's much more likely to hurt you a lot. So there's sort of this, do you want to be fast and just make a lot of noise and maybe get off the ship before you die, or do you want to be careful? Um, And... You know, I, I, we had a lot of fun playing it, even just two players, which I think, I really think it would be a lot more fun with three or four, just that if you have one person rocketing off, then it kind of sticks a flame up everyone else's bum of being like, you've got to get over there quick. Yeah, the really intense conversation Matt and I had afterwards over a yeah. really intense burrito um, is that uh, <laughs> the thing about deck building games is they can cover up like... The sheer power of the joy of deck building mechanic is uh, evidenced in a game called Star Realms, right? Yeah. Where it is basically a, a, a game where you build a deck and then play the cards like the numbers are coming up in a slot machine of just pow, 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 I've got three ships, I'll buy three more. Pow, 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 I've played more ships and then I've shuffled my deck and bam, I've hit you again. Um, and it's like, there's very little to it, but it's still fun because deck building yeah. is great. So we've, so with Clank, I've, we did have fun, mostly looking at the art, I think, um, for me. That was maybe why I was less keen to play it again because I I felt like I'd seen a lot of the cards. Um, But it's weird because it was satisfying and it was fun enough, but I felt like I didn't have that much respect for the design, not because it was a bad game, but because all deck building games like have that sort of level of satisfaction. So we were talking a lot about like, well, you know, how many deck building games to shut up and sit down even need to review because they're all, you know, really quite satisfying, whether it's Trains or Arctic Scavengers or even Dominion, you know. They're all very similar in terms of the mechanics as well. Like this had all of the traditional things of being like, get this type of card and it lets you draw up more cards, get this card to thin your deck. And all of these mechanics are very satisfying, but we were basically realized it was this odd thing of when I got into Star Realms about a year and a half ago, I was like, this is great, but it was the first time I really got into a deck builder. Right. Whereas me and my brother loved it, but you guys weren't interested at that point because you... We'd gotten into deck builders around the area of... um, Dominion and Dominion and Arctic Scavengers and then later... I think A Few Acres of Snow might be my favorite deck building game, but yeah, that was like five, six years ago. Yeah. And so it kind of has this weird thing of... We felt particularly... And uh, it may have been the burrito talking, but we felt <laughs> we felt particularly that deck builders had this strange um, kind of self satisfaction engine at the core of them that most of them use quite religiously. That it's not so much that there are good deck builders and bad deck builders. It's it's often more just maybe just like if you're not in the mood for a deck builder now because you played a really good one recently. It doesn't matter how good it is. You're probably just not in the mood. Yes, there might be yeah. like a, a a a burnout timer of being like. I had I had a really fun time playing Clank in Space, but it was that thing of being like, we afterwards we were like we both had a lot of fun, but we're like, when was the last time we played a deck builder? And because we were kind of done with them, we hadn't played one for maybe two or three years, and it's like, is this really good, or have we just not played one for a while? And it's like, 
it's like with a video game genre of like if you don't play an MMO for 10 years you jump in you're like this is great and yeah. then and then after a year you're like no it isn't I just <laughs> I was just <laughs> ready to do it again yeah I think you know the funny thing is I've been thinking about Dominion a lot which I'm not sure if you've played but that was like the the um, the first deck builder where you have a deck and there is no board there's no you know play this card to move around a board. I've seen it it's obviously it's huge I've yeah, seen it being played a bunch I've but never I mean, got around to it it is just a shop and so sometimes there are cards to if you make enough gold on your turn then you can buy a victory point card but of course every victory point card you put in is essentially blank so it just makes your deck worse so it's when do you start buying victory points and I've been wanting that like, never mind all this. these games which are like, oh, well, what if we use deck building to do X, Y, Z? Because actually, in those games, they're not much of an exploration of the no. real puzzle of deck building. Like, we were playing Clank mm -hmm. in Space, and I realized that I'd only really shuffled my deck like three or four times, which means I wasn't really building a clever engine. I was just buying, oh, that card looks nice, I'll buy that. And also, the board was kind of flavor. Like, there wasn't a lot of stuff taking place on the board. No, but it was. It sort of made everything seem evocative. Yes. So I was thinking, like, goodness, I would love to go back to Dominion and actually play a game where you shuffle your deck, like, 12, 15 times. And every card you put in is part of an engine. You're really trying to solve a puzzle. And players in Dominion win, not because it's like, um, yeah, you bought, you had the right cards in your shop. It's like, no, in Dominion, anyone can buy any card at any time. So the person who wins probably is the person who figured it out. I think I've been frustrated with deck building games of like, you know, we all we both spent our turn buying the right card from the shop and you won. And I didn't feel that I had much agency in your win or your loss. The thing is though, I'm really good. Matthew, you're so damn good. You're so good. And it drives me wild. <laughs> Again, though, you know I, what? I, I, I feel that um, Dominion hasn't... I mean, it, it's old now compared to a lot of these as well, but there are... Dominion has so many expansions and it has so many different cards that it adds that, you know, you can end up with, I think, something like, if you collect them all, I don't know, 100 different possible things. And I still think there are certain combinations of card where Dominion just remains a really tight, really cool game. It's probably a matter of opinion what those are, but combine a couple of different expansions, a couple of different decks in there, and play a game with, you know, what the internet might tell you are some of the best combinations of cards. And I think that's still going to be a game that will beat something like Clank, hands down. Yeah, I, I agree. I think maybe we it's time for the deck building genre to, like, stop, look at itself, look at Star Realms, instead of say what are we doing? <laughs> then like maybe take it back to a point when it, when it had a, when players had a bit more agency and an ability to control their decks rather than this thing of like constantly putting cool stuff in their decks and cool stuff coming out. And, and actually if you really, really think about it, there's not necessarily that there's less tactics than there I used found, to be. I found my tactic with it is always just to thin my deck out and put as many yeah. cards as possible in that let me draw cards up. But then I'm literally like, there's no strategy there at all. I'm literally just making it so that every time I draw, I end up drawing half of my deck. And yes. then next turn, I draw yeah. the other half of it. And loads of things happen, and I often win. Which is fine, yeah. but I'm not really... Yeah. But you don't necessarily feel clever when you win a deck builder no. and I don't feel like I've made a mistake when I lose them especially with cycling shared shops of random stuff yes it's that's just like, the key thing oh I keep getting the things I need and no one else does and it's like yeah sure yeah whereas mm. like, let's go back to that heart that is in Dominion and is in Arctic Scavengers yeah Arctic Scavengers the and shared shop and trains as well and a few acres of snow that first wave of deck builders where it's like well no we'll have less types of cards we'll have less art we'll have less variety but everyone can buy everything which means you're all playing a game rather than sort of seeing what comes up which is exciting but goodness we've talked about this for a long time shall we <laughs> shall we all collectively clamber down the mouth of yes. the mailbag into the <gasps> mouth of the beast Ooh, put your hand in my mailbag so we have a question from listener alexander sibley in north carolina who says hey guys love the site love seeing your packs here's a question i'm curious to hear your thoughts on i found Oh, sorry, if you found yourself back in time, say the 1950s, aka the Dark Ages of board games, what game would you pretend to have invented? Mm. That, that thing of taking technology back in time to change history. <laughs> Are we going to take license with this question and be like, well, we can not just invent a game, but like make it slightly different? Yeah, why not? Okay, cool. Well, Paul, did you say you were thinking about your answer for this? I think it's a yeah, great question. There, there's a couple of things. Um, funny that we just talked about deck builders because I feel like in, in the primitive uh, years of the 50s where there's only very basic technology available, there are cards. 
and I could say like, hey, folks, I've come up with this new way to play a game and it would, it would, you know, it would change the 50s. It would probably end the Cold War right there. <laughs> oh, wait, are you going to say you would have invented Twilight Struggle, the famous war game of the Cold War and go, look at what happens, Mr. Oh, d- Roosevelt? D- d- no, but actually that could also be a cool idea. Um because that's something that, uh, you know, I, I could very easily introduce other people to and I think would really, really take off. Or uh, the other thing I was going to say was, I don't know, you've, the 50s is when I think The Hobbit came out and stuff. I just want to do something relatively straightforward dungeon crawlery just much earlier than anyone else. Just oh. immediately get those out there, and all you need is some D six or maybe a, maybe a tile laying dungeon crawler, something like that, and sort just be like the Hero Quest era, something like that. Yeah, something maybe a little bit simpler, and say, folks, you know, we don't need to uh, we don't need to have this horrible Cold War. We don't need to have all the fifties troubles that we have. Let's sit down, let's play games, let's be friends. Isn't that the era of people <laughs> sitting down and playing games? You're quite optimistic about your abilities to stop. <laughs> <laughs> to prevent the Cold War. I guess if I went back in time, I'd just be really blasé. I like that I'd be about looking you at the stuff that people are worried about and being like, oh, don't, that's not going to happen. Oh, don't worry about that. Other stuff's <laughs> going to happen and that's going to be awful. You're but just these, you're these taking this aren't. question and turning it into like an episode of Sliders. This is not... Well, the- I am going to I'm gonna <laughs> invent Skull. Okay, right? there you go. But I'm going to work in, in the franchising and it's going to be called coca-cola cards (laughs) and it's going to be hugely lucrative and popular and i'm going to build a massive penthouse skyscraper in the middle of a city and i'm going to marry martin mcfly's mother you know the plot of uh terminator 2 where like i do i know it very well (laughs) which bit would you like to talk about i would like to talk about the way that they go back in time and need to destroy the technology that's my favorite bit right so the scene where they have to like go and smash the arm of the chip and they can't it would be that it would be like you need to imagine, like, you know, smash up. cut to, like, <laughs> camera mounted on a van, you know, driving down the road. So we've got that nice close-up of the stripes on the road, whipping past. Yeah. Pan up. It's you, me, and Paul wearing trench coats on our way to, like, Hasbro's factory <laughs> with, like, some kind of awful homemade bomb. We gotta stop. We're gonna blow up Clue. all the supplies of Monopoly in the world. I mean, it would have to be, like, the 1910s, because that's yeah. when Monopoly took off. But that would mean that we would be in like a sort of Bugsy Malone car with like canisters of gasoline or something. And then as we drive off, we're like, ah, oh, that was some sort of cosmic encounter. And then this other guy, pan, camera pans, <laughs> a man in his 30s who goes, cosmic encounter? Now there's a name. And he goes and, you know, starts working on <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And then we come back to the present and it's called cosmic encounter, but then you open the box and it's just Monopoly. It's inside Monopoly. It. Like, no! No! Uh, but what happens if there's a question for board game historians? If you're listening to this and you do work, because I know a couple of you guys, and specifically girls, work in the history of board games, can you give me a proposition of what happens if Monopoly never happens? Mm. Like, does that actually? Because I'm thinking, oh, that'll make board games better because Monopoly's terrible. But if less people play board games, maybe it makes board games worse. Probably. Maybe it makes board games the forgotten hobby. In which case. I would need to go and talk to the woman whose name I forget who invented the Landlord's Game and say, hey, I know you're doing this as a way of proving that capitalism is bad. But it won't work. But what if you just made it fun instead? I mean, there's probably a way to make Monopoly. It's still a statement, but it's still I don't think it'll work, though, Quince. I think that the success of Monopoly is that people, there are enough people who in the one out of four times they play it get to crush other people. Find that fun. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's Across the their heart family of it. as well. I know, but I think that's the heart of why it's popular. I don't think it's an accident. Getting I to think, squeeze the life out of people. I think, but I think that's the, the the entire human problem is is just convincing people that it's better to have a small amount of fun and not crush your family all the time than it is to occasionally enjoy that. Um, and what's wrong with you? It is so weird. But Paul, do you get that? The same thing that Matt and I do, where people go, "Oh, you work in board games." You must be really good at board games, you competitive bastard. Yeah. This is the thing. I've actually had, what was it? It was a couple of years now when I tweeted about some not being very good at something and somebody just immediately tweeted back and said, I don't believe you. I don't <laughs> believe that you're bad at board games because you play so many of them. I was like, oh, you, you should, we should meet up and play something and I might be quite bad. I'm in that position where there's a couple of games that I play a lot and I have become really good at and there's also a lot where... 
like I don't think being really good at something or not being really good at something means that you can't be a critic of it or have an opinion no, of it no, or of something. Course not. I mean, of course ludicrous. Not. ludicrous. I, I have because we play so many, I think we're also really blase about winning. But I have this really annoying <laughs> thing where when people come to my house for my sort of like regular board game group, if they're only ever coming once because they're like only in London briefly or something, they will be so competitive, especially <laughs> if they don't play many board games. And then they'll win a game or like they'll win all the games that night. And then I'll realize like as they're leaving, it's like, oh no, you son of a, oh no, you don't. Because they'll never ever come to my house again. Probably will never play a board game again. So they've shown up, beaten me at everything and then they're leaving and then I get competitive. <laughs> it's like, no, come back. Wait, come back, sit down. We're going to play Cockroach Poker. I but do. Uh, occasionally it's like, it was funny, like, you know, my brother-in-law popped in to pick up some chairs from our, our flat and we were playing Star Wars Rebellion expansion in the front room and he was like, oh, who's winning? And we were like, I don't know. <laughs> it's just like, that's what happens. Whenever people see you playing a game, they're like, who's winning? And it's like, doesn't, isn't really relevant. It's not about that. Let me tell <laughs> Tell you all about the, you know please sit down i must show you agricola this is where we get our self-esteem from see this little wooden man he's a meeple he's integral to my psychic like makeup no don't go <laughs> yeah right uh we've kind of got off off <laughs> off track a little bit paul what are you planning to do today oh i didn't i didn't know this was on the podcast agenda what am i planning to do today uh uh, I, I mean, you don't have I, to tell us. What's Paul I haven't got thought about going this on? It was to do, get up, do the po- have some toast, which I've done, do the podcast with you, which I've now pretty much done. Um, I've got to go to the post office and get a package <laughs> because something has been delivered. Um, and it actually got... So here's an insight into the production process. I might have been filming something for Matthew the other day. <gasps> um, Matthew, I don't think has the take of this, but at one point... Uh, I was doing the thing and uh, the slip comes through the door, which is like, you were not here when I tried to deliver the package. And I'm like, that, that I'm literally right here right now. <laughs> yeah. And it's like on camera evidence. So whatever that might be, I will go and chase that down. The place that I live has been there long enough that I've got like the, all the couriers and the postmen trained. Like, you know, when I first moved there, they would try and be like, oh yeah, there's no one in this building. And I'm like, I'm here, I'm here. No, don't you leave. And I run out. I'm like, ring the doorbell I'll next time or I'll kill you. If um, we have any listeners who who work in that sort of business, I would be interested in what that what your side of the insight is if there are some days you just can't be bothered. Oh no, I've, the slip I've, the I've chased the postman down before when I got given a you weren't anything. And 90% of the time, it's just actually, it's a mistake. They don't have it in the van and they know there's something that's supposed to be delivered, but they don't have it. For whatever reason. But that means they have to like, if they know you might be in, they have to post the, yep, you were not in through the door and just run. Yeah, just sort of. Well, or hope that you're not in. I hope that you won't hear it because you have to be listening for the little clink of the door thing. And if you see it or, yeah, I was like, where is it? I'm here. And he's like, I don't have it. And I'm like, well, why didn't you say I wasn't in? He's like, oh, it's what we do. We don't know what to do. Wow. He broke down crying in the street. Don't do that. Said, my life is a lie. If you would like to tell us why you don't, why we're not receiving our post, uh, or if you just had a question for the three of us to ask on the podcast, um, then you can do that at contact at shutupandsitdown.com. Yeah, if you're a postman, I've been waiting for my repaired sunglasses to be coming back for about three months from Australia. I don't think they're Ooh. coming back. Is it a scam? Have you got them? If you're a postman, give them back. Thank you very much for listening, everybody, and give Matt's <laughs> sunglasses back. Thanks. Bye. 